Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. The program was available to everybody who was in a sex offender unit in the state of Arizona. I didn't set out to do that at all. You know, people think that I did some great things. Well, I just did what was in front of me to do. And this is the way it went. And it could have died on the first, you know, group. But it didn't. It kept growing. And, uh, and I stuck with it. And I was patient. You know, it took years to do that. I can tell you what worked for me, but I tried a lot of things first that didn't work, you know. And some of the things I tried may work in other places. With professionals, I say, just be general. Tell them it's a program that will change people's lives and uh, change them from being an addict to being a sober addict. It won't make them well. There's no cure for addiction. But they will develop some tools that will help them stay sober, stay on a different track in life, and make something of themselves and of their life, and make it worthwhile. I had tried through a uh, chaplain. Uh, I went to lunch with him, told him all about the program, gave him some literature, said, you know, can you make any difference in your prison system to get me in there to run a meeting? And he said, I'll try, you know. And then he called me back in a few days and said, I can't do it. And I've talked to the head chaplain. I've talked to the, to the warden here. And, and they're all saying no. And he said, I'm not sure I know exactly why, but he said, I'm not going to ask him anymore because I don't want to antagonize anybody either. I got to work here. And then I, then they had another uh, contractor who was coming in, a therapist who was coming in uh, weekly, I guess, to run therapy sessions with the prisoners, sex offender prisoners. And so I made a, an appointment with that therapist. And I, I spent some time with her at the prison and uh, uh, found out what she was doing and told her what I wanted to do. And she said, well, looks like we could really complement each other. You know, uh, you're doing one kind of thing and I'm doing a different kind of thing, but we're not in conflict. They're just different. And uh, so she said, I'll see what I can do. 
Well, within a week, she called me back and said, I can't break through this at all. They want only therapy. They don't want any 12-step program for sex offenders. And I said, well, thanks anyway, you know. I've never been successful in trying to convince somebody who's an expert by whatever definition. If he thinks he's an expert, I've never been successful in changing his mind about something related to his field of expertise. So I just I just feel that an awful lot of that kind of activity where we're trying to convince some professional that they're on the right, wrong track is, is a waste of time and energy. I prefer not to waste mine. So I, I don't, I can get into some kind of superficial discussions, what I believe, not what's true necessarily, but I would phrase it as I believe that the sobriety definition makes a lot of difference. It has in my life. And I would like for you to give this definition a chance because it has, in my judgment, a greater chance of changing the lives of these people. And now, of course, with all the experience I've had, I could say I have dealt with addicts who have been in those other programs and have had a lot of trouble. And now they're in SA and they're sober and they're changing their lives. It's not everybody. And SA may not be for everybody. But I think it's uh, the best shot at recovery for sex addicts. I think the best I best thoughts I have are to get on the telephone, call the uh, headquarters of the system for your state, call them, and you'll get a secretary. Talk to the secretary. <laughs> the secretaries know everything. They don't have any authority. Can't give you permission to do anything. But they can give you lots of information. You can find out about the organizational structure of the state system. You can find out if there's a complex close to your home. You can find out a lot about the structure of that complex. How many units do they have? Do they have separate uh, sex offender units? Or are they combined units? And every state's going to be different, I think, in some ways. But you can begin to collect that kind of information just from a telephone call. And then when you get kind of toward the end, you can, and you don't have any more questions and you think maybe you've taken up enough time or whatever, you can say uh, something like, uh, I got to think this over. I got to study this and see if I can understand all the notes I've taken here. Um, would you mind if I call you back if I have some other questions? And, and that way things will occur to you. And you can feel free then to call because they'll almost always say, oh, of course, you can call anytime. 
because that's what they're there for. She answers the phone. <laughs> and, uh, and that way you can, you can get a lot of information. And you'll never get that by going to a prison unit. They they don't have the they don't have it in written form, uh, and if they did, they probably wouldn't pass it out to people. But over the phone, secretaries open up, and they've got the information. So that's my best advice. And then you see, you can find out. Well, now who's in charge of this? And who's in charge of that? And who should I really have to talk to to get? some more information about the technical part of this or the, to get permission to do something, who would I be talking to? I called the uh, central office of the Department of Corrections in Phoenix and I talked to a secretary. Mm -hmm. I told her I wanted somebody, the highest up person <laughs> in their organization who could uh, deal with 12-step uh, uh, programs. And she said, oh, that would be so-and-so. And she connected me up with him right away. The guy who was supervising all of the 12-step programs in all of the prison units <laughs> talked to him on the phone. And he said, you're asking an awful tough question, he said, because I've been fighting for that for a long time. And he said, I've never been successful. And uh, and then he uh, he explained to me that the at, right under the director of the Department of Corrections, <laughs> there were two people, <laughs> two kind of vice directors or assistant directors or something. He was one of them for all of the non uh, for all of the twelve step programs, and and a woman doctor was in charge of all the medical programs. And he said, I didn't like it, but he said, they've decided that at this very top level that the only programs we'll offer for sex offenders will be offered in a medical mode, in medical therapy, in other words. But he said, I will raise the question one more time <laughs> because I'd like to see that happen. But he said, uh, we'll see. And... Uh, he called me back in a couple of days. And he said, no luck. We're, we're just out of luck. He says, there's nothing I can do. And he said, I would just be making an enemy of myself if I keep pursuing it here. So we, we were not going to do that. Well, one day out of the blue, out of the blue, I got one of the letters that came back to me from one of the prisoners I was sponsoring by mail had a surprise in it for me. <laughs> he said, uh, along with other things, you know, he had his regular letter and the step that he had worked and all that. He said, I would like to have you send me all the materials that, that we will need to run meetings here in the prison. Because he said, we're going to start <laughs> an essay meeting on a regular basis here. In this prison unit, so I uh, I didn't believe it. You know, he's just a prisoner. I've never met him. You know, I don't. I know his name, and that's all. 
and I, I know his writing is not very good. He was one of the reasons why I decided I had to write out some very simplified step guides because his writing and his reading were not very good. I wanted him to be able to do the, do the steps. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I put all the stuff together, collected it, put it in a package and put a cover letter in there. And I, and I told him, among other things that were special to his recovery, I told him not to be too disappointed if he didn't get a meeting started because I had been trying by that time for years, for maybe four or five years, to get meetings started. And I every time I had another brainstorm, I'd give it a shot and it wouldn't work. And uh, so I said, uh, just I gave him some of that history. I said, just so I'm only telling you this so that you won't be too disappointed if it doesn't work out. But I praised him for wanting to do that and being willing to put his sobriety and program on the line to get it started in the prison. If the prisoner really wants to get a meeting started, they can be most effective with their personal contacts inside the prison. With a counselor, with a chaplain, with a deputy warden, assistant deputy warden, somebody in management, but not necessarily the warden, but down the, the road a ways. And even if they're not the one who can help get the meeting started, they'll know who to tell that prisoner to talk to. And uh, the main thing is the prisoner needs to needs to be able to express from the prisoner's perspective what good is the program going to do? How will it help the prisoners and how will it help the prison? Because when you get this many guys uh, doing something really constructive within a prison unit, it's a... Uh, it's uh, it's addictive in itself. <laughs> they feel good about doing something worthwhile because, you know, most of what they do is not worthwhile at all. Well, within a few days, I had a call from the prison <laughs> asking if, if from the uh, deputy warden's office if I could come out for a meeting uh, a, a, an appointment to just talk to them about the program and uh, I said sure <laughs> so we made an appointment and they sent me a letter that I could use in lieu of a pass to get into the system and uh, so I could get through the gate okay with this letter inviting me to a meeting <laughs> with the assistant warden <laughs> And uh, <laughs> he was a real nice guy. And we spent about a half hour together. And he said, I want to I want to get this meeting started in here. He said, I'd like to have you do it. Would you be willing to do that? 
So <laughs> I was being honest with him. <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm, I would be very happy. I'd be delighted to do that. But I want to be sure you know that I've been trying to do this for a long time. And I've never been able to get permission. <laughs> but anyhow, we finally got this meeting going in the prison unit. Now, I had to go through a number of hoops in order to be able to do that. I had to have uh, training as a volunteer. That was about a half a day training up in uh, Florence. I had to... Uh, I had to go through a pretty exp extensive background check. It's just like, you know, with the FBI, you, you, you gotta list every place you've ever lived. And I was not a youngster by that time. And the FBI go and check all those places. <laughs> you know, they don't, <laughs> they don't just go through the motions. They, they know. <laughs> They'll talk to neighbors in every one of those places. <laughs> where you've lived. <laughs> and if you haven't lived there, you're in trouble. <laughs> so anyway, I uh, passed that. Then you have to have a, uh, it's a health screening thing, but it was, uh, it was for, uh, uh, what was it called? I had to have a, a blood test for it. Anyway, you have to do that. And then uh, I passed all that. And then I finally got a badge so that I could get into well, the prison units without, uh, you know, with just the badge. Because the badge proved that I had passed all these other one of the things. Uh, so I got in and I started, I, in addition to sponsoring my mail, I started this meeting in the prison system, and then gradually we were able to uh, expand the prison system, the meetings in the prison, and we did it in a number of ways. One of the things I did was, after I got one meeting going in a prison unit, I got to know the administrators, and then I would ask them what they could do to help me get involved in another prison unit. And uh, some of them, it was just a matter of friendships. If this prison uh, director knew that prison director and they had a pretty good relationship, he'd say, well, I'm willing to talk to so-and-so about it. And then I would get a call from so-and-so and he would say, I'd like to know more about your program in SA. But it wasn't out of the blue. It was all planned. <laughs> uh, I used that approach to expand the program. And I had prisoners who used that approach. Sometimes a uh, prisoner would get moved from one prison unit to another. And he would be able to talk. He would be a member of SA and he would be able to talk to people there about the program. Sometimes he'd talk by, uh, uh, initiate talk with his own counselor who didn't know anything about 12 step programs. And then he'd, uh, find a therapist 
who he could talk to. And then he could find a uh, an uh, assistant uh, deputy warden of some kind and, and work the way up in chain until they could finally get to the deputy warden. It was through connections that were already there. But the deputy wardens, you see, were were in the spot of uh, approving something that had not been approved and had been deliberately disapproved <laughs> at the top level. <laughs> so they were sticking their necks out. They were saying, I believe in this program. I believe this will work. But if anything goes wrong, <laughs> I'll be transferred. <laughs> you know, it was just that simple. Here's a guy who's in charge of a whole prison complex in this state and and he's sticking his neck out for this program. Well, I was going to be damn sure that we didn't make any mistakes, that we didn't screw anything up. So I was extremely careful in following all the rules. I didn't want to get thrown out and hurt all those prisoners by screwing up something. That was my real motivation. And uh, besides that, I wanted to prove that I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, uh, except for my addiction behavior, <laughs> I've always wanted to do what was right. And uh, if I didn't know what was right, I tried to ask somebody who I thought should know. And then I would do it as well as I could. And, uh, uh, the training is mostly what not to do. You know, don't, uh, oh, they said things like, don't befriend inmates, you know. Well, that's because if an inmate gets you to do something nice for him, then he'll have something else next time and it'll be something a little nicer. And gradually, he's asking you to do something that you're not supposed to do. So even if the first things like, oh, could you get me a piece of notebook paper? Yeah, no problem with that. But what's it going to be next time? Next thing you know, you'll be giving them money. And the next thing you know, they'll be using that money to buy illicit things. Or they'll be using it to influence the decision of a worker. You know? And and it's on and on like that. Uh, it's always being super careful. So... I think that it's best always to follow the letter of the rule in the prisons. That's the only thing they know how to go by anyway. I only broke one rule that I know of, and it was only one time, and I didn't know I was doing it until after it was done. (laughs) But one night, we were saying goodbye to one of the prisoners who was getting out and uh, on parole. And... uh, so I decided we'd have a little party for him. And I knew I couldn't bring a cake or anything like that. But I brought a roll of uh, lifesavers. 
And at the meeting, toward the end of the meeting, I said, this is party time. <laughs> and I started passing this roll of of uh, lifesavers around in the meeting. <laughs> and uh, a couple of them jumped on me real fast and said, you can't do that. <laughs> So we didn't do it. <laughs> but uh, a couple of them did have lifesavers, but but we discontinued that right away. I was able to, uh, on my way into Florence, I was able to stop in Eloy <laughs> and have the meeting there, and then go on to Florence and have four meetings in Florence. Uh, but there was a total of five meetings every Wednesday. Um I had been in other units along the way. That's a long story, which I won't bore you with. But uh, I got into a, a private prison that is actually in Florence one time because a whole group of uh, SOs from one other unit in Florence got moved into this private prison. and And we had a we must have had 25 in that group. And it was going very well, and they were all excited and enthused about the program, and they were staying sober. I mean, it was just hard to hard to understand how it could be doing so well, because some of the groups weren't that good at all. They'd be drifting along with two or three people in the group, and... And then they'd grow for a while, and they'd shrink for a while, and guys would get out or decide they wanted out or whatever. And uh, but these guys were were uh, all excited, and they started working with the chaplain in this private place. And the uh, chaplain was also a musician, and they started this big choir. And uh, they sang at Christmas time, and and they even went out of the prison with the chaplain to uh, for demonstrations, you know, concerts in the community. Well, they started telling that chaplain about this essay program, how it was such a great thing, and they missed it so much, and. Is there anything he could do to get that program in this private prison? Well, I got a call from the chaplain here at home. And they, uh, he asked me to come and meet with him. So I did. And he said, uh, we're going to start SA in this unit. And I said, great, you know. When do you want to start? Well, he was all ready. I'll just do it. And it never occurred to me <laughs> that he wasn't asking anybody for permission. For permission. I got in there. I met with this group. I met with in the, the, this chaplain. He had an all-purpose room or a multi-purpose room or something attached to his office. And we met in there. And the program went very well. I knew all the guys already from the other place. 
And so we just picked up where we left off and it was going fine. I was in there for maybe, I was every week, maybe for about uh, two months, maybe three. And uh, one time I went to this gate where I was always met by somebody who had a key and would open that gate and I would walk in and went immediately to the to the uh, chaplain's area and have the meeting and all that. Well, this one time I was met by a guard who I had never seen before. And he asked me my name, I told him, and he said, uh, what's your business here? I told him, and he says, yep, you're the right guy. <laughs> He said, follow me. <laughs> well, I, he led me directly to the uh, to the uh, warden's office. And uh, he said, the warden will be right with you. I said, well, okay. You know, and the warden uh, came out and talked to me. He asked me my name and, and uh, what was my business in the prison. And he had just found out about the meetings going on. And he came, he went back into his office. He came out with a box. The box had all my supplies in it because the chaplain had given me a locker where I could keep my materials and all that. And, and by golly, he gave me the box and he said, uh, these are your materials. He said, uh, you've had your last meeting here. And he didn't say any more than that. And I didn't want to get into a discussion with him. I, you know, I didn't want to think I was trying to change his mind or something. Because when a warden makes up his mind, he's got it made up. <laughs> and so uh, he, uh, I left. Well, what I found out was that the chaplain never got permission to have this meeting in, in, in that unit. The chaplain, the, the uh, warden, didn't know anything about SA. He was just upset at, with somebody who didn't follow the protocol. I was not openly critical of the prison system with the prisoners or with any staff there, with even chaplains there. Um, chaplains can't be critical either of the prison system. They just work there. They had guys in every unit. The wardens were on a friendly basis with me. Uh, they knew what I was doing. If they had any questions about it, they'd ask me, you know. And if if, uh, if anything seemed to be out of order, they'd ask me, is this okay or is that okay? Did you know that so-and-so is doing this or that? And Well, they sometimes the guys were meeting with each other out on the yard. You know, they were friends <laughs> and they weren't having a formal meeting out there, but, but they were, they were helping each other in ways that sponsors would, you know, there were no formal sponsors on the yard, but, but they would do that. If I would consider myself their sponsors and they would consider themselves my sponsees, then we could open up the, that channel of communication 
a little more than we could if we just all were members of a meeting. Uh, that was the kind of program I, I thought would work best there. It's hard to have a one-on-one sponsoring meeting with a sponsee in the prison system. Uh, at least here in Arizona, they frowned on having a prisoner stay out of his cell after the meeting was over or get out of his cell 10 minutes early to talk to me before a meeting. I never figured out a way to get around that. So I I did a kind of a middle ground in sponsorship. I would do it during the meeting. If a guy come out, came out with a statement that I felt needed some, some experience, strength, and hope, I would do some limited, always limited uh, crosstalk with a prisoner. I always felt that the issue, I, I would do it only when I felt that he was bringing up an issue that might be important to other people in the group as well. <laughs> and, and then I would, I would, uh, I would uh, say just a, two or three sentences about that. And I would say, uh, Think about that for next week. And if, if you have any other questions, just bring it up again next week. And they would do that. We used the step guides for both, for the, for the sponsor by mail. And then when I was able to get meetings going in prison, I used the same step guides there. Now, there was one difference. Uh, in the sponsor by mail program, I just sent them one step guide at a time. But when I started using those step guides in the prison system, I gave them the whole packet because I could talk to them and give them some advice and say, yeah, you don't read step three until you finish step two, you know, because guys would get on the outside too. They, they get worried about how am I ever going to make amends to this person? And they're still doing their inventory, you know, and I always say, don't worry about making amends till you get to step nine, you know. <laughs> you, 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 right now, all you're doing is your inventory. Do the best job you can on your inventory. And then if you have a problem when you get to making amends and you're wondering, how can I ever make amends to this person? We can talk about it then. So, when they told me that... Uh, I got a call one day and they told me that I could not uh, write to prisoners and have meetings with them in the prison system. That there was a rule against that. And you know, I never, I never fussed about it at all. I didn't say, well, I've been doing that a long time. You know, there's no problem. Believe me. You know, they're, they're in charge. <laughs> and so I said, uh, so they told me that I could either write to prisoners in the sponsored by mail program, or I could continue to meet with them in the prison meetings, but I could not do both. And the only question I asked them was, <laughs> how soon do you have to know which one? <laughs> and he was pretty nice about it. He said, well, I can give you two weeks. 
So I got real busy, started checking around uh, to see what I could get, where I could get help from other SA members because I'd been doing this pretty much by myself. I just had one guy who was a chaplain, a volunteer chaplain in the prison system. He was a pastor of a Catholic church here in town. But he was one of our members. He was an SA member. and uh, But he also had a pass that would get him into any prison unit <laughs> for religious purposes. And it turned out he could use that same pass to... to uh, sponsor SA meetings in the prison. So he filled in for me on my vacation periods when I was going to be out of town and gone across country for a month. He would take the meetings for that period of time. And he did that for quite a number of years. And he's not here in town anymore. And I'm not going on vacation anymore. So it's working out. But anyway, um, they, uh, they gave me that option, and I found out that I could not find anybody, even among the retired guys, I couldn't find anybody who was available during the day to uh, uh, be in the, I, I, can't, I don't say run the prison meeting, because I never ran the meetings. I, the first chore I had was to teach all of them how to run meetings, and then they rotated that. Once in a while, one of them would ask me, would you would you lead the meeting today? <laughs> I'd say, sure, it's my turn, you know. <laughs> but but the, otherwise, they were in the meetings and uh, did a very fine job of it. But I wanted them to be able to start a meeting on the outside if they got out and couldn't find a meeting. Uh, so anyway... Uh, I found out that I that I could not find somebody to run the meetings in the prison, so that's what I decided I would do. Not all sex offenders are sex addicts, and not all sex addicts are sex offenders. So I will tell them that there, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of sex addicts are sex offenders. A lot of sex offenders are sex addicts. That's why I go to sex offender units to... to uh, work with sex addicts. But you can be a sex addict all your life and uh, your crime at age whatever may be robbing a bank. You know? So you don't get put into the sex offender unit. We posted uh, notices about the meeting. Uh, (laughs) I had one place (laughs) where where I gave a copy of the, uh, uh, just kind of a master thing, uh, to one one of the counselors. And uh, the counselor, counselor added some stuff to the, to the notice before she posted it. And one of the things she added was, uh, if you're interested, sign below. Mm-hmm. Well, what are, what are you going to do about anonymity there? You know, that was a real blast. <laughs> and uh, so when I when I saw that, I uh, I went to her and said, you know, please don't do that. Uh, we need to take those down, and we need to say, if you're interested, talk to your counselor. 
or send a kite, a little letter to your, to the authority who would be able to get you released from yourself for those meetings. And uh, that worked out very well because they didn't have to identify themselves to anybody but the person who knew all about them anyway. And, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting episode. Uh, <laughs> nobody signed up. <laughs> so I found out why. <laughs> See, they had to have uh, passes, uh, and those were printed out. Passes every week was a separate new pass, and they had to t- bring it to the meeting. And uh, I didn't have to collect passes or anything, but I had I was supposed to see all the passes. So they had made a decision to uh, at least explore the SA program. And so I didn't have to do go back way to ground zero for the, for the orientation to it. Now some of them had false ideas and and some of them had uh, a lot of uh, doubts about it, you know. But uh, sometimes they had heard about the program from a fellow prisoner who would say, you know, you really ought to give it a shot. And sometimes they, w- they, would, they would borrow literature from another prisoner and read some of it. And then they'd get interested because, you know, it was telling their story in the book. And uh, so these people may have some sense about it because I can relate to it. You know, that's how we evaluate stuff. And uh, sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong, but that's how we do it. Anyway, uh, in the prison, they they were more ready to at least find out. They were curious about the program. It was a matter of uh, really starting out with good, solid orientation concepts. And uh, I would do that sometimes by asking questions and seeing what kind of responses I'd get from the group. And when a new person came in, I uh, I would want them to know something about the program and, and how we function and uh, that uh, anonymity and, uh, you know, don't go out of the yard and quote anybody else in the group. And you can be assured nobody else in this group will do that to you either. And uh, some of the rules, you know, the I don't even like to call it rules, but just the culture of the 12-step program. I would try to share that with them, and then I'd ask them if they have any questions. And sometimes they'd get off the subject, and you know, ask some other question. Well, I I always felt that they were not getting off the question. The question they asked was important to them, and so I would do my best to answer that question. Sometimes uh, I wouldn't tell them all I knew about it because they couldn't absorb that much at one time anyway. But but I could tell when I I watched their responses to what I was saying and 
as long as they were absorbing it and and it was something the other guys could use a refresher on anyway, I'd keep going. We would share some of our stories a little bit, and then we'd ask him if he wanted to share some of his, and they'd almost always grab at that opportunity. Once they once they felt comfortable with the group, uh, they were anxious to share. That's true on the outside as well as inside, for in my experience. Uh, even in the outside group here, we get we get guys in who come and they're sure they're not going to share anything with this group when they come in, and then they hear others sharing and they say, "Yeah, me too." <laughs> and uh, they'll open up and share, even at the first meeting they attend. So, and prisoners do the same thing. They really do the same thing. They're a little more reluctant to share in the beginning because, you know, what they say in prison can hurt them. I always advise them right from the beginning not to share any information about the crime that they were convicted of because that might still be under appeal of some kind or it might make a difference when they come to uh, probation, you know. Um... I, uh, uh, you know, we always say, uh, you know, don't share details that might trigger somebody else. And, you know, you can get that in the weeds with that one. Uh, so that was always part of it. But the specific kind of stuff was don't share anything in meetings if you have a concern that it might get spread, it might get found out somewhere else on the yard, and it might have a negative effect on you or your opportunity to function in the prison. So sometimes they would get to a point in telling a story, and they'd say, uh, and, and then some stuff happened that I don't want to talk about. And uh, we always respected that. We always knew what that meant. They knew as much about my sexual misbehavior as I knew about theirs. See, prison officials figured that if if they found out things about me that I didn't want other people to know about, they could blackmail me somehow or whatever. And then I would start bringing contraband in for them so that they wouldn't tell anybody about my misbehavior. I think that's why they initially told me that they just didn't want any SAA SA meetings in the prisons, uh, that it was dangerous for the prison to sponsor that kind of stuff uh, because guys will find out things about other guys and then they'll use it against them and we'll have a constant uproar in the prison unit. So I made up some rules for uh, SA that that I used only in the prison system. And uh, that way they were able to function freely and uh, with confidence. And uh, we emphasized the confidentiality in the in the meetings in the prison in the prison system, 
So you can go out there on the yard. You can tell people what our meetings are about. You can tell them what they, what good the meetings are for you. You can tell them what kinds of things we talk about in the meetings. <laughs> but don't you ever <laughs> quote anybody out there. And I don't want anybody to quote anything you say in the meetings either. You're free to talk in here. The uh, sex offenders were always on the low, low end of the scale and they were always uh, being discriminated against by other prisoners. And the prisoners would uh, call them names and uh, occasionally beat up on them and things like that. So they wouldn't even want anybody to know that they were sex offenders. But now this this state has all the sex offenders on the same in the same complex, and nobody else in the same complex. They're all sex offenders. The interesting thing is, <laughs> within and among the sex offenders, there's a pecking order. And the uh, the guy who had sex with his uh, teenage girlfriend is not so low on the scale, but the the child molester of a three-year-old child or a one-year-old baby, you know, they're right at the bottom. They're the scum of the earth. And I know from my work with them, they're, they're not the scum of the earth. And they're on a track now that is wholesome and helpful and healthy. Yeah, I met guys uh, after I was having meetings in the prison who I had been sponsoring by mail before and uh, they had a good grasp of the program they were they were doing well I've never had a prisoner get out of line in a meeting I've had them stray sometimes from what we might call the best uh, topics for meetings you know, once in a while, if a prisoner would be leading a meeting, the meeting could begin to drift into prison rules and regulations. And how do we deal with that? I was basically pretty permissive in, you know, if I heard the first word about a prison rule, I didn't say, wait, we're not talking about that. I would let it go for a little while, see where it was going, see what it was related to. And then I might throw in a question. Like, how's that related to step three? <laughs> you know, or whatever. And they would, they would, they would tie it back in. Uh, once in a while, I would have to say, you know, we're getting pretty far out of line here. Maybe it was with a fairly new group or a group where most of the people were pretty new. And uh, then I would have to explain that, you know, this is why we're here. And we'd like to stay on topic if we can, as much as we can. But there'll be things, other other things that will be related to it. You know, in, in SA meetings here in town, you can 
you'll have guys come in and they're having a fight with their wife, you know. How do I get along with my wife? You know, well, technically, that's not an essay issue. But in reality, it's a human issue that a lot of essay members have. And, uh, and so I was pretty permissive. Not totally permissive, but, but I would let him, the leash was pretty long. And I found that uh, if I would let them talk about what they wanted to, they would let me talk about what I wanted to. And then they would find out that what I wanted to talk about was pretty important to them too. You know, because I knew something about addiction and recovery. And and I had sponsored so many guys that, that uh, I could refer back to that wealth of knowledge about other guys and the terrible problems they could have with their lives as a result of their addiction. But I didn't have to quote anybody. I didn't have to tell where I heard it, you know, whether I heard it in prison or not in prison. And I didn't care if a guy just walked in off the street and we never saw him before and he says, I'm having this rotten mess with I did this addiction. I I can't do this, and I can't. I got all these temptations, and women. All these women are against me out there, and all, you know, all that. I always say, let him talk. Don't let him take the whole meeting, but let him talk. And when he gets finished, then let's have some experienced voices share some of their experience, strength, and hope with it. So we end on a positive note. And uh, tell him that he's welcome to come back again. And we hope we can be of more help and more meetings. Because that's how we got help and got to the place where we are in recovery. And we just want to share that. Mm-hmm. And uh, makes them feel at home. Mm-hmm. Makes them feel that their words are worth something. Instead of just writing it off and saying, no, you got it all wrong. This is the way it really works, you know. Uh, I don't believe in doing that. And I could have done that so many times in the prison system where guys just came in and, and they were, they were really angry with, with some woman who had accused them of something and they didn't do it. I don't know if they did it or not. It doesn't really matter for the reasons we're there. And so, but I'd let them talk. And, and then, uh, in a in a gentle way, um, respond. And one of the guidelines for responding is what you've probably heard of too, as tough love. You know, don't give an inch on principle, <laughs> but on the love, just smother them with it. And I can say to somebody who's disagreeing with me, no, I absolutely disagree with you. But I respect your right to your own opinions. And I hope you'll respect mine. And I'd just like to have you think about this one thing before we meet the next time. And I'll tell them what that is. The next time we meet, before a meeting or whatever, I'll say, what did you think about that? thing, you know, that we talked about last time. 
because we didn't agree. And I want to know if you've got any other reasons to disagree with me, because maybe I'm wrong. You know, in the prison, uh, we were uh, having a moment of silence followed by the by the Lord's Prayer, you know. Well, I had guys in prison who weren't Christian. What do you say about the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> and I didn't know. I didn't know. So I didn't say anything about it. We just did it. And we did it until one night after a meeting, one of the Buddhists <laughs> said, you know, I don't hate the Lord's Prayer, but it isn't doing me any good. And so we had a discussion about that at the next meeting. And we decided that we would have a full minute of silence at the end of the meeting, during which everybody could pray any way they wanted or not. And uh, that's how we would end our meeting, with the minute, full minute of silence. And a minute of silence is a long time when you're watching your watch. And so that worked really well. And nobody ever objected to that approach at the end of a meeting. So I think what I've learned through my work with the prison system is hang loose. There's, there's not just one perfect way to do anything. And uh, if, if prisoners move you toward in a different direction, Maybe there's some value in that. Give it a shot and see where where it takes you. Be flexible, and and when things come up that where there is an apparent uh, conflict between between the twelve uh, step program and something that a therapist has been telling them, or uh, some procedure in the prison that doesn't seem to fit very well. Be creative. Put the pieces together in a different way. And so it's not the official way to do it in SA. If it works, it's better than the official way. (laughs) So I always felt do whatever works best and pay attention to... Keep monitoring how it's working. Uh, And the guys will appreciate that. And they'll get much more out of it that way than if you try to, to, you know, write all the the, uh, uh, literature and the rules and procedures. And and I always uh, uh, tried early on to get newcomers to uh, lead the meetings. And we had good materials, you know, for doing that, just like we have on the outside. And, uh, and I would, I would, they would ask me questions sometimes, a new leader was, what am I supposed to do next? And And I would often say, you're the leader. Whatever you do, it can't be wrong. <laughs> and sometimes they lead us in different, little different ways, you know. And the guys would would perk up and say, "Hey, this is a little different," you know. And 
and uh, we all profited from that kind of flexibility because it was a creative creativity built in. You know, we were getting new ideas and things all the time. Most of the time, we only found one unit out of maybe 15 that I've operated in over the years where we could use, where we could use metal chips, you know, the brass and the aluminum. Uh, so what I did was I had printed up a friend of mine who had a print shop and doesn't have it anymore. But uh, we printed up chips of all the standard denominations, the months and the years. And we had them printed in squares instead of circles because it's easier to do. And uh, they say essentially the same thing as the chips say. And then they could cut them up. And they did that. And then I'd bundle them in packs with a rubber band on them by by uh, denomination. So we've got... Uh, uh, month chips and year chips on paper. And I don't know whether other states will have similar regulations. Uh, but the one place where I was able to use the metal chips was where a, a very experienced counselor, uh, ran interference for me and almost made a demand. <laughs> But he didn't get fired over it. And they finally said, yes, it would be okay to use these metal chips. But I had to, I had to agree that every time I gave a, a, uh, prisoner a metal chip, I had to receive one back in return. So they had to turn in their old chips. Incidentally, there are some guys who I was working with while they were in prison who are who are still in prison, and I'm not doing that anymore. So they uh, occasionally I get a letter from one of them, and they'll tell me that they've, uh, they've got uh, a new, another year of sobriety, and I will send them one of those uh, paper chips. I don't send very many metal chips by mail, but I do have a couple of guys who are out there who I send. Every year I send them a, a metal chip. So there are guys who have more than 20 years of sobriety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I always had the attitude that I was not running the groups any more than I run a group on the outside. Uh, I was a sponsor. I was a resource person when they had issues or things came up. And I was a full participant. I would not hesitate to participate in the discussion, but I would not monopolize it. Uh, but I would share in, I, I, I would make my sharing a kind of a model as much as I could. Um, we didn't do a lot of uh, book study uh, they all had white books. And uh, what would happen is often they would uh, bring their books to the meetings. I didn't tell them they had to because sometimes they didn't even want to be walking across the yard with a white book. But uh, 
but sometimes they'd open a white book and read a, a paragraph and say, you know, what does that mean? Or I, I want some help with this. I don't quite understand this. I, and and then we we would discuss that part of the book. But it was never a, a programmed uh, white book study. And we didn't uh, focus a lot on... Uh, on uh, stories, you know, uh, uh, where an addict just tells his story and then people comment on it. Uh, there was a lot of that content, but it was uh, more dealing with an issue and different guys would tell how they deal with that issue. So they were pretty creative if, if we let them go and let them say, what do you think? You know, anybody have an idea about that? But, but I always tried not to be, to, I, I tried to share what I knew. Didn't hesitate to do that much, but I didn't want them to think I had all the answers. That, this is a fellowship, you know, and we're all in this together. And I need this program as much as anybody else here. I realized that in some ways, the program that I was offering in the prison was not as good as they could have gotten here in Tucson on Sunday nights. But I knew it was better than any alternative that I could think of. I felt that the meetings in prison were better than the sponsored by mail in terms of outcomes. Some of them would just get lazy or tired and quit writing, and, and then I lost them. If they miss uh, two or three meetings in a row and then show up again, I can say, uh, have you had a problem? You know, did did. I noticed you've missed the last two or three meetings, and and is there anything I can do to help? Uh, or have you just uh, been too busy? Uh, guys here in Tucson ask me sometimes, how much time every day should I be spending on my meeting, on my uh, recovery? And I say, well, you ought to spend about an hour a day. You got 24 of them. <laughs> You know, you ought to spend about an hour a day unless you're too busy. If you're too busy, you ought to spend two hours. <laughs> you know, because you're in trouble when you're too busy for your own recovery. It's got to be the most important thing in your life. Or you're not going to make it. And I always, uh, I always gave them advice on... Uh, what they should do in getting out. Some of them had uh, family members on the outside who they could talk to on the phone. Maybe not very often, but once a month they could make a call. And uh, sometimes the family member would get some information about meetings on the outside before they got out so that they'd be ready to roll. 
other times uh, they wouldn't have that kind of support on the outside or they wouldn't want to share that much with their family. And and then I'd tell them what they should do when they get out and uh, just make it your very highest priority when you get out. It's more important than where you're going to live because you won't be living anywhere if you're not sober. And I kept emphasizing that, you know, it's got to be your highest priority. Make a plan. Make a plan. Don't just go out there and say, what am I going to do now? You got months in prison when you know you're going to be paroled and use that time. Use it well. Plan your whole life as well as you can before you get out. And and know that that plan is flexible. That it's only a, uh, your best guess for today. Because opportunities will develop and blockades will be thrown up in your way. And Don't be discouraged by any of that stuff. Just roll with it. Say, wow, I never thought of that. You know, and wow, there's an opportunity to be creative. <laughs> so for guys who are going to go into prison work, uh, be careful. Be flexible. Be creative. Being creative means take advantage of opportunities that show up in your life. We don't create our opportunities. I believe that's all God-given and inspirational. But we can accept or reject those opportunities. And frankly, life is not long enough to accept all the opportunities we're showered with. All the blessings and opportunities to develop and grow and all that. So we have to set some priorities. Don't overload yourself. But don't underload yourself. Keep looking at those connections and the, and the opportunities that come your way. Now, have I done some things that are different from what you've done? Sure. Am I proud of them? Sure. But it's just because that's what was in front of me to do and I did it. You know, it's not because I'm great. I just did it. <laughs> 